Hello, welcome to episode 47, 47 of the Making Margin podcast. My name is Nick Foy, the founder of Greenway Wealth Advisors. We are a financial planning and investment management firm based in the south end of Charlotte, North Carolina. We got a, it's a very exciting episode today, I think. I don't, I don't sense a lot of excitement amongst my colleagues, but I'm excited. Oh, Natalie. You're just you waiting. That's because you put us excitement. all on mute. Yeah, we're ready. Let's go. All right. So the excitement is around the topic of conversation for today, which is mistakes. What are those things, the biggest money mistakes that we see people make? All right. I added up how long I've been considered an advisor. This is 16 years. That's crazy. 16 years, Allie. (laughs) All that means is you're old. Speaking of which, I got experience uh, is what we prefer. Yes, I I got text message from your husband Allie on my birthday, and it said "Happy birthday, old man!" And I was like, "You've been calling me that since I was the age that you are now." (laughs) At least he remembered your birthday. Well, you probably helped him out. I'm sure. I actually didn't. Someone helped him. You know, he was aided by something. Um, Anyway, 16 years for me. Drew, how long have you been an advisor? Oh, just the time here. Well, no, but you were registered as one before that. Yeah, um, then that would be just a little less than you, like 14, 15. All right, so we'll combine that. That's 30 30 years. Natalie, how long have you been registered as an advisor? Uh, I guess almost three years. All right, that's 33. She's just a little pup, little babe. Just... (laughs) <laughs> and uh jeff how long have you been registered as an advisor closing in on five okay so we were at 33 but 38 almost 40 years of experience here plus ali who's full of wisdom i advised third graders for five years does that count yeah i mean and you're even though you're not like a registered advisor you're you're very smart oh, and good with money so i feel like you're in a good spot to have this conversation be a part of it there's a lot of collective wisdom around this virtual table. One thing that we're not going to talk about this episode, but I do want to bring up Allie is uh, our family's conversation around getting a dog. And we should let our listeners know about that at some point, but it won't be today. Um, I'm just going to leave that hanging out. (laughs) Right. So um, this conversation is something we talk about a lot. We talk about uh, the importance of avoiding mistakes with money uh, and the reality about personal finances that so much of it is uh, not necessarily about trying to hit home runs um, to use a baseball analogy, but just consistently hitting singles, getting on base, not making mistakes. And um, there are some common mistakes that we see people make. And we talk about those with our clients pretty often. Um, a couple of years ago, Nick Majuli of Ritholtz Wealth, who I think has great content on his site and we'll link to it in our show notes, uh, but he posted uh, a article titled the 10 biggest money mistakes. And we're going to steal some of that. We're going to go through those and then we're going to decide whether or not he's accurate, whether we think there are additions or subtractions or modifications that need to be made. All right. That sound good. Everybody. Okay. With our almost 40 years of collective wisdom, there's wisdom beyond that, but professionally collective wisdom. All right. Let's go through. Should I just go through? I'll go through the 10 and then we can go through one by one. Okay. Number one, cutting spending instead of raising income. 
is the number one mistake that he lists. Number two, not thinking like an owner. I think that's a really good one. Number three, overemphasis on small wins versus big wins. Overemphasis on the wrong syllable. Number four, timing the market. Number five, borrowing, borrowing too much. Number six, paying attention to other people's finances. I like that one a lot. Number seven, too much lifestyle creep. Number eight, investing in products you don't understand. Number nine, paying too much in fees. And number 10, obsessing over not having enough money. So those are Nick Majuli's 10 biggest money mistakes. We can go through them. We can make modifications, additions, whatever we want. I'm going to go back to the top. Cutting spending instead of raising income is the number one mistake that he claims that people make with their money. Um, Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is an easy one um, that I've personally done or focused on and that we see clients try to do that as well. Like, how do I cut this or how do I... I mean, just from a personal example... Um, we were looking at our healthcare options as small business owners and healthcare, as we've talked about, is a huge expense for our family. And healthcare for small businesses is extremely expensive. So when I looked at our options for this past year, I was like, you know what? I need to go and get hired at Starbucks so that we can cut, we can get a healthcare plan through Starbucks and I can cut that expense for us. And then I was like, that's so dumb. I mean, I could just quit this job and go back to banking and make a lot more money if that's really the biggest concern, you know? And, and uh, I think we we all do that in certain ways of instead of asking for the raise or, um, you know, thinking about ways to increase income. And I see this even with um, people in their 20s who are in their first career and I'm helping them uh, as a mentor, financial advisor, and you know, they don't make very much money. And instead of focusing on how can they maybe pick up a second job or babysit or dog sit on the weekends to close the gap. They're just so focused on what if I don't eat out one, one time this week, you know? So I think this is a common one. I think the cutting spending is just habitually, it's very difficult to make that stick. So even if you could do it for a short period of time, it's hard to do that over a long period of time. And you know, there's only, he makes this point, like there's only so far you can go because you still have to eat. Um, so I think that's a really good starter point. Do you find conflict between number one and number seven, which is too much lifestyle creep, being a mistake? Is there conflict embedded in there? What are the risks associated? Uh, yeah, I mean, a little bit because you have to you have to be cognizant of your spending, but I don't think that you can cut your spending to wealth, right? And you can't do enough there. Um, I've got some other but thoughts. But you can overspend it, out of wealth. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of which, your buddy, Mr. Money Mustache, Jeff. Oh, yeah. Did you, did you see his recent car purchase? I haven't. I haven't uh, been following him along recently. I, it floated onto my newsfeed. He just spent $50,000 on a Tesla. And he's, you know, one of his like super long form posts defends spending $50,000 on a Tesla. He's like, yes, I spent $50,000 on a high-end car and uh, goes through all of his reasoning why. And I haven't read it, but I'd be interested in your feedback. Yeah, Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. Take that Um, one offline. Yeah, and we see it to Allie's point. We see, take that one offline. We see 
people with relatively high incomes that fall victim to number seven and number six, paying attention to other people's finances and end up overspending themselves to the point where there's still no margin. And so no amount of increased income is necessarily going to add margin to their universe, their financial world, because that is just a habit that they're in is that when the money's there, it gets spent. And uh, that's a hard, it's a hard habit to break because, well, I got a little extra and I'll go ahead and spend it. Um, And so if we don't, you know, initially save and invest with those, uh, you know, among the first dollars that we have, then it doesn't really matter how much income there is in a lot of ways. So you got to have the, the discipline too. All right. Number two says not thinking like an owner. He mentions in uh, number two, the richest NFL player in NFL history. Does anybody know who it is? Super creep. I, I don't know that I agree with super creep. I think he's probably just a product of a different generation. No, I actually knew him personally and he was actually always very kind to me. So, well, there you go. Yeah. Of we course, are talking about he was. <laughs> none other than Jerry Richardson. The late. Yeah. He still got the statue outside of a Bank of America stadium. I don't know if he was a super creep or just a regular creep. I feel like our legal department is going to want to scrub this one before it goes out. Yeah. I, I feel like we don't know the situation. We've saw reports, but let's keep Allegedly. it away from the word creep. It's a podcast episode. Nobody cares. It's got to be somewhat controversial. It is boring. <laughs> Jerry Richardson was um, just like all of us. You know, he's mixed as far as his uh, sort of he had moral failings, just like we all do. How about that? I don't know specifically what they were, but there are rumors of that. But the point that Nick makes in here, not me, Nick, Nick, Nick Machuli, is that he made his wealth not from the NFL, he played in an era when NFL players did not make a lot of money. After he retired, he started owning Hardee's franchises. Who doesn't love a Hardee's burger? This is the old school Hardee's though with the orange sign before they merged with Carl's Jr. and, and just like took over the Carl's Jr. menu. A lot of people who aren't from the West Coast don't know that. Allie, have you ever been to a Carl's Jr.? I don't think I've ever been to a Hardee's or Carl's Jr. All right. Um, you have an assignment today. <laughs> we, we're we're going to see one of those here. A hundred percent. You're in Tennessee. They got Hardee's all over the place. I'm going to send you a dollar. I'm going to send you a ten dollar gift card after we're done here. I want you to take and go to Hardee's and buy a ten dollar burger. I'm looking up. Milkshakes are pretty good. Oh, I will get a milkshake. I'll drink any milk. (laughs) Do you mean milkshakes in general or Hardee's milkshakes? I had this conversation once with Natalie's twin sister. No, I was speaking of Hardee's. It's been thirty years since I've had one, but it it was amazing. Okay, just kidding. I remember it being (laughs) Hardee's. I remember Carl's Jr. anyway being very hit or miss. Sometimes you go back, this is the best fast food burger you've ever had. And sometimes you go back, that is terrible. So, you know, like McDonald's is consistently mediocre. Like burger roulette. Yeah, burger roulette. I like that. Anyway. McDonald's is consistently delicious. Let's get that straight. The fries, always. The fries are the one thing that's not consistent. (laughs) McDonald's is what it is, and we're okay with that. But he, anyway, he made his wealth. He owned a bunch of Hardee's franchises, and uh, that was what he did. I, I like this idea, too, of um, having something to go to like as your career develops, and you say, well, what I, I want to retire someday. But uh, when we model out financial plans, we say income goes to zero. But realistically, like most of our clients can have something else to do. They've developed a lot of expertise over the years, and they go do something and make a little money on the side and travel and whatever else. And... Um, I think that's a great transition uh, for people. And he was able to do it after his NFL career. And a lot of athletes do that. They go into real estate or whatever else. I met Muggsy Bogues recently. 
a little fella. Uh, he went into real estate after his NBA career. Smallest player in NBA history, Allie. Don't look at me like that. Five foot, five foot four, five foot six. There's a difference in making a stat and making a not so kind comment. But he's a little fella. He would say that. <laughs> That's what that means. Hardest worker in NBA history. How about that? Number three, overemphasis on the wrong syllables on small wins versus big wins. Um, who's seen this happen? His example is people being willing to drive a long way to save a small amount on an item. What are you laughing at? You're laughing at me. We'll drive to Costco, which is not that close to us, to get cheaper gas. And then you go into Costco and you spend like $400 per time. <laughs> That's true. But the you saved $3 on that tank of gas. Yeah. What did you say, Drew? Yeah, the gas. Uh, that's what was going to be my illustration. I just didn't realize it was going to hit so close to home. <laughs> okay, but you save on everything in there. You save on the toilet paper, and you save on the milk, and you save on the eggs. It, yeah, it's stuff you need you anyway. Yeah, and wine. You need <laughs> They've got great deals on wine. Um, but I do think this is a good point. And uh, even like from a savings perspective, people do this where we, we talk about that. And we're going to mention a little bit, um, you know, these like small, whatever savings people do, uh, but then they overspend on what are the big things, cars and housing we talk about, right? Where uh, you overspend on those two things. It doesn't really have much, matter how much you save on getting a tall latte instead of a grande. Do they still call it grande? Do they change the name? Still grande. Okay. So I, I actually, on this point, on like, I agree with it, but I also see the flip side of it where people overemphasize the big things especially from like a savings perspective like oh i can't save a full ira contribution so i just don't do it at all um i think one of the biggest money mistakes that people make is not saving early and often and it doesn't matter what you like it's a muscle you got to start somewhere and those small wins can really add up when it's from a savings perspective rather than he's comparing, you know, saving on an item versus negotiating a salary. Uh, but if you're, if you're thinking about like investing, the small wins can add up. Um, so overlooking that I think is a big, big mistake. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a really good point. And doing it like starting early on a percentage basis, right? And just say, I'm going to save 10% every paycheck or whatever the number is. Um, And we struggle with getting people to start if they have not done that. Um, And it's easy in a 401k for a lot of people, and especially outside of that. It can be really difficult, especially if they haven't, to your point, worked that muscle. I would also say like small wins over long periods of time end up to real money. You know, like I'd totally drive across town to save $40 on a television set, assuming I have the time. And uh, it's like, you know, like I think that is about across town for me is like five minutes, I guess. But um, I think like knowing what the costs are and then saying, well, this is how much this should cost because I know I can get it for that. And then deciding, is that worth it for me to go to the effort to do whatever that thing is? Um, I think that's a smart thing. Uh, I think you feel better about it after you got it, knowing like I researched, I know what this should cost and I didn't overspend on it. I also think it goes with uh, lifestyle creep. Like if you're only going to shop at Publix, like 
because that's convenient to you or whatever, but driving 10 extra minutes to Aldi or Costco or whatever saves you $100 in groceries every week. Like that adds up really fast. So like you said, it, I think that they're, you know, they're both important, but overlooking the small wins can add to lifestyle creep, which can get you in trouble as well. Totally. You're so good at this too, Allie. I am very my, good at being cheap. Let me tell you. All my clothes are t- yeah, but without seeming cheap though. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think it's, that's a good thing. Um, all right, number four, timing the market. Talk to me about this. He says, no one knows the future of where the market is going. 2020 taught us that more than anything. It wouldn't really teach us that. We sort of relearned the lesson where everybody expected, oh my gosh, the market's going to tank, and it did, and then like completely recovered and was way up by the end of the year. Um, being right about something and making money off of it are two different things. The differentiator is timing. Um, what do you think about this? It's time in the market, not timing the market. And Jeff Emmerich, everybody. That's what experience brings you. It goes along with the last point that, um, you know, like just making it a habit of saving and investing instead of trying to say like, oh, I'm going to catch the bottom of the market. Well, what is that? And does that even matter? Um, and the answer is nobody knows. And no, it doesn't. Because if you look long term, um, even if you invest at market peaks, you're still doing better than stuffing money in your mattress. I think this is such an interesting one because a lot of people intellectually know it and can't apply it necessarily. They say, yeah, I know that I shouldn't be timing it, but I don't know if now is a good time you know, to do whatever in the headlines. And right now, and I, I had a conversation with a client yesterday about this. What about all the bank group clients? Yesterday? What about all the bank stuff that's going on? You know, and uh, I don't know. There are a lot of scary stuff all the time. Uh, and, uh, but what I do know is that it like doesn't change my viewpoint that you shouldn't be invested in like, long-term aggressive things if you're going to need the money in the short term and you shouldn't be invested in short-term conservative things if the money's intended for the long term um and then you don't have to worry too much about the timing thing thoughts on that anymore number five nally has in addition to this also i believe number five he says borrowing too much they say it takes money to make money which is why borrowing to invest can be such a profitable strategy unfortunately things go south if you could lose it all <clears throat> borrowing too much as a mistake. Yeah, I think this is a good point. And I think um, when we think of it practically, what does that actually mean for you and for me? I think where you can really get into big trouble financially is when you buy too big of a house or too expensive of a car. Um, Because those are monthly obligations that you are locking yourself into. Um, And a lot of times people get pre-approved for a home um, way too high of a percentage of their income because they got pre-approved. They think, oh, I can do that without really thinking through, well, I'm going to have no margin for anything else. And if something goes wrong, how am I going to make up that difference? Um, and so it's very, very difficult to, um, to cut spending in other areas in order to be able to meet the obligations that you lock yourself in for. So um, I think homes and cars are two of the biggest areas where people think they're doing okay. And then um, something changes and all of a sudden they're not. Yeah. I think especially borrowing for depreciating assets like cars. I also think like illiquidity, right? Like not having enough liquidity can be a huge mistake because it can get you in a lot of trouble. And people that had a conversation with a client yesterday, last two days, same thing. But we're both like, we're thinking about getting more investment properties, a client that has a couple and then one that wants some. And uh, both of them struggle with liquidity. 
And well, it's probably not a, your issue right now is liquidity. And that is not going to help it if you go buy more investment properties, right? Um, your issue is not income, which is what those are intended to generate. And uh, I think that borrowing too much and illiquidity are sort of hand in hand, but um, having money on hand, be number one, invest, and number two, cover emergencies is a huge thing. Thoughts on number five? One addition on the, you know, the car and the house and stuff is uh, not budgeting the additional costs that go with those purchases. Um, so it's really easy. You know, I have a need for a car, um, but then all the things that the service of that car um, require and the increase in insurance for a newer car or for house and maintenance, um, that those are costs that can easily sneak up on you. Yeah, people do it all the time with houses and they're like, oh, I'm renting and it's $2,000 a month. And if I buy, it's going to be $1,800 a month. And it's like, no, it's not. Uh, um, I think that's a really great point. Number six, paying attention to other people's finances. Nobody does this, right? No. We have never. it on our, yeah, we have it on our site. Lottery, uh, lottery winners don't make great neighbors. And there's data around that, that people that are neighbors of lottery winners, um, end up going bankrupt at a much higher rate than the general population because their neighbor wins a lottery. They start buying whatever and they, oh, I got to do that too and keep up and all that sort of thing. Um, even though they didn't themselves win the lottery. Um, do we see this? Is this a thing? Absolutely. I always really uh, admire even people that like live in nicer neighborhoods with bigger houses, whatever. And uh, somehow like don't, don't concern themselves with what their neighbors are doing, right? Uh, like they obviously could. And this is one of those where um, a lot of times what's on somebody's balance sheet and what's in their driveway and the house are very different things. Uh, and we get to see that and definitely paying attention to a wealthier neighbor and the decisions that they're making shouldn't impact our own. We talked about too much lifestyle creep. So I'm skipping seven. Number eight, investing in products you don't understand. Examples. Annuities. <laughs> Just going to say it. <laughs> Crypto. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think there is, there's a potentially a big list here of things that yeah. people might not understand. Um, annuities for sure. Whole life insurance for sure. Anything where there's like, we have a, a client who uh, has an annuity that he was sold and uh, there's a lot of fees associated with it. It's brutal. And I, I, I just hate it. I told him like things like this totally make my blood boil when um, we see what he ended up with because he went to who he thought was a trusted advisor and ended up getting sold uh, just a awful piece of garbage annuity that he has no business having but annuities are sold they're not purchased right and you can tell that something is hard to understand when there are three different balances and so you look at the statement there's the balance of the cash value there's the balance of if he actually withdrew what he would get which is five percent less than the cash value because there's an exit fee and then there's the balance of the uh income value which is if he annuitized it what they would base his income off of so you look at the statement it's got three balances on it give me one balance right i don't need layers of whatever else adds up to for all these things to exist. just tell me what the balance is like if i were to withdraw this account how much money would i get that's pretty simple right i might pay taxes on it or whatever but like what's the balance in the account the more balances that there are um, on a statement, the less I understand it. And that's probably intentional in some ways because complexity can add to create fees and that sort of thing. Um, 
Which brings us to number nine, paying too much in fees. Thoughts on this? I mean, I think he lays it out quite well um, with his example of if um, Warren Buffett had operated as a hedge fund, you know, if you, you had invested $1,000 in Berkshire Hathaway in 1965, by 2009, your investment would have been worth $4.3 million. If he had set up Berkshire as a hedge fund and charged a 2% annual fee plus 20% of any gains, you would have been left with only $300,000. That is a massive difference, and that's all because of fees. 10 times difference, 10x. More than 10x. Yeah. <laughs> and where would that four million have gone? You know, to the advisor um, or to um, Mr. Buffett. So yeah, the, if you can cut the fees, um, you yeah, add some return to yourself or yourself. <laughs> yeah, the hedge fund manager would have gone to his yacht is where it would have gone, which would be pretty awesome for him. More than 10x because of fees. Um, so yeah, brutal. So if you're paying fees, know what they're for and know what you're getting in return. Uh, and something like that probably is not worth it. Last one, number 10, obsessing over not having enough money. He talks about Michael Kitsis here, what he noted. The 4% retirement rule has quintupled wealth more often than depleting principal after 30 years. So he says only about one in six retirees sell down their assets within a given year. Um, in fact, many more leave behind hundreds of thousands of dollars in inheritances. Um, and they say, don't spend your life worrying about money. Only let someone else enjoy it. Now, there may be different reasons to leave money behind that may be very specific and maybe things that you actually enjoy doing. Um, but how much do we see people obsessing over not having enough money? When you see somebody like that, the general makeup is what about um, that person's uh, sort of emotional state? What do we see? There's a real fear um, around it. And we see it probably most frequently when there's a life, like a life change, um, most notably retirement, because you're going from a, you know, getting a paycheck every two weeks or um, whatever period you have uh, to having nothing coming in. Um, and just remembering that that's why you saved for all those years is so you, you could have nothing coming in and spend from it. And that's okay. Yeah. I think that uh, for sure retirees, when things change and they've gone from consistent paychecks to no paycheck, um, you know, the concern starts to creep in. The other place it comes in is with, even with Uber, 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 Uber wealthy, top 0.01%. A friend of mine runs a foundation for a very wealthy man and uh, talks about, how that man will call, watch a CNBC every day. We'll call when the market's down four tenths of a percent. What are we doing? We got to react to this. Some of you worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, like this is not, should not be a concern. And, uh, but he'll still uh, be concerned over running out of money, which is a, just a crazy thought for most of us. Um, Jack Bogle wrote a good book about this called enough. And, uh, the idea being that like we have to decide when enough is enough and be okay with that. And if there's more then that's great. Uh, but obsessing over not having enough for sure can lead to uh, a lot of disappointment for people and a lot of heartache. All right. Things that I would add, first of all, anyone else, any other things that we did not talk about Natalie allocating too much to cash you have written down. Yeah. I think um, if you were told that you had a, 
absolute guarantee of losing, would you invest in that product? And I think everyone is like, well, no. Um, but I think people don't tend to think of cash as a losing product over the long term. And, and when we when we look at, I just saw a chart of the actual purchasing power of the dollar over the last 30 years, and it's down 39%. So over, if you had a dollar um, 30 years ago, that would be worth you know 60 cents today. Um, and if we change our perspective and think about that, I think that would make people a lot more willing to put money in investments. Um, and this doesn't apply to an emergency fund, which I think everyone should have some cash available um, in case of emergency or it for liquidity needs. Um, but when we're looking at retirement account for millennials, for example, um, something I just saw a statistic from um, Peter Malouk of Creative Planning that said something like millennials have 30% of their 401ks allocated to cash. We know cash is going to lose over the long term because of inflation. Um, and, and a 401k is a long-term account. Um, so yes, you if you invest in stocks, you are going to lose some years. We know that the market goes up and down. Um, but over the long term, that's the only way really to um, to have higher expected returns than inflation uh, and not considering how the dollar will lose because of inflation is, is a really big mistake, particularly for young people. Yeah, it's a good way to do to, to our last point, run out of money is having too much in cash, uh, earning zero or negative amounts over the long term. Uh, negative after inflation. I think that's a really good one. And people get hamstrung, right? They have a bunch of money and hits the account. I talked to a woman yesterday, her husband left a job and he rolled over to an IRA and it's sitting in cash. He's like, I don't know what to do with this. And so it ends up just sitting there. And uh, that is like, it, it, she just did it. It's not going to hopefully be a long term, but that can be disaster for a lot of people when it just sits there and they don't know any better. 401k plans used to be designed like that, actually, where it would just go into cash and nobody knew what to do with it. And uh, luckily that's improved. Um, so target-dated funds have made that easier for people to actually own assets and not just leave money in cash. So that's good. Do you have one more? Do you want to share it? Um, the other one that I had in mind was um, not preparing to change your mind. And we talk about this with our clients a good bit, right? Like uh, we make a plan, we put goals out there, realistically five and 10 years from now are different people and have different desires and want to do different things. And saving and investing puts you in a position to change your mind whenever you want to. So you say, now, actually, we don't want to live in this house or we want to remodel our bathroom after 10 years of living it or whatever those things are. Um, if you don't add liquidity and you don't save and invest, then you don't have the ability to change your mind. And the future you is going to want to do that uh, more often than we necessarily think we do. Um, so that's a mistake that I see people make is just assuming that the things that we want out of life now are going to, we're going to continue to want those things in the future, even though uh, the things you want now are different from what they were five and 10 years ago, largely. So that was the only other one I had. Anyone else have any others they want to add or modify or delete? This isn't really an addition, but it's, I, I like the way that he closes this this article um, by basically saying, don't beat yourself up about the mistakes. Um, and I know Jeff and I both serve as volunteer mentors for this organization called Third Decade, which provides free financial education, personal education, financial education um, to people early in their careers who wouldn't typically have access to um, a 
financial advisor. Um, it pairs them with an advisor over two years. And a lot of the conversations that I have initially um, with those with those participants is, you know, they feel guilty because they have debt and, um, you know, they've made mistakes. And um, a big part of it is telling them, oh, you've made mistakes. You realize that, um, but it's not too late to turn the corner. And little habits now can really accelerate in your future and can put you in a very different position than you were when you were taking on this credit card debt, for example. And I think he does a nice job of summing this this article up by saying, um, a mistake is a dividend of knowledge that will pay you until the day you die. Um, so not getting so hung up on the past mistakes you've made, but um, acknowledging uh, those mistakes will really help you set yourself up for a much more successful future. That's a good one. Um, I have one. I think just philosophically, knowing that money isn't the goal, it's a means to whatever your goals are in life. Um, It's so common to see people come in and and talk to us about how, like, just making more money, making more money on their money, outperforming the market, all these things with no consideration to what the money actually means to them or what it should mean to them. So I think it goes along with a lot of the different points, but um, even in terms of like looking at a budget, you should use a budget as a check on your values and to see if your money is going where you think it is and where you, where you want it to go. Um, So I think the biggest mistake is like not having any direction and thinking that just amassing wealth is the end because it's not. Yeah, I think that's really good. You know, without any purpose behind it, it can be pretty meaningless. And I also think that without any purpose behind it, you end up with a lot of number 10 where you obsess over not having enough, even though you don't not even really like to find what that means. Like what's enough for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. Yeah, I love that. Cool. All right. Well, we were recording on a, a Thursday uh, in early May. On Saturday, Allie is going to see everybody's hero live and in person. How many times have you seen Taylor Swift? More than two. Yes. More than five. I'm not sure. Probably about that. Maybe a little Probably about that. Yeah. So she's going to see Taylor Swift live at Nissan Stadium in Nashville. Mm-hmm. I'm actually jealous. It's which is an good. example, again, an example of how we change over time. Five years ago, I would not have been jealous that you're going to see Taylor Swift. You're welcome. Today, a little bit jealous. I brought Jay into your life. We have uh, a house full of Swifties, thanks to you. Especially our daughter, who's nine. Uh, She's a nine-year-old, and she's big into Taylor Swift, and so she plays her in the car and all sorts of things. And uh, I want to be the dad that takes her. And what was the shirt? Did you read? tell me about the shirt, Nat? I can't remember why I read this. There's some dad at the Taylor Swift concert, and he's there with his daughter and her friends or whatever. And his shirt said, it's me, hi, I'm the dad, it's me. Which I think is pretty good. Solid. Really solid. That's it. You're really, really sad that you didn't come up with that. I can tell. I know. Oh. Dad of the year right there. Yeah. So anyway, but uh, I didn't tell her about the concert or even the option to go because tickets are more than I would ever spend on a concert. Well, and if you wanted them for affordable, you had to spend a lot of time getting them. So. Yeah. Also love. Yeah, life stuff. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question. And then I'm going to let you guys go. This was a conversation around 
Oh, and Natalie's got a, she's got a meeting coming up. You can go ahead and drop off. I'll ask everybody else this question. How much would you spend if you already bought your ticket to upgrade your seat to first class on a cross country trip? Ready to go. How much did I spend on the original ticket? Don't worry. Don't worry. It's a sunk cost. Don't worry about how much. How long is the flight? Is it like six hours hours to Paris? Okay. It's a five hour cross country. $100. I think that's kind of good. Jeff? Maybe, maybe 20 bucks. Yeah. Pays for the the drink. (laughs) (laughs) Drew? 100. Okay. That's good. I like that. You guys are all sort of in the ballpark with my family. My daughter said $1. My son said right rules. Exactly. Yeah. But I think my son said $100. Um, so anyway, this helps me as I consider life choices. I don't, like, when I see that, I'm, you know, whatever, even if it's $100, I'm like, yeah, but I don't mind being cramped for a few hours and uncomfortable. Yeah. If it was like my flight to China was 14 hours, I would definitely pay $100 to move to first class for that. But for five, like, whatever, suck it up. Suck it up. Yeah. I like your attitude, Allie. It's good. Cheap. Most, I, I wonder, like, if you pulled most humans, like, broadly, where they'd end up on that. Like, the yeah. average American. I mean, the average American flies economy, so. Yeah. When we were, uh, we did spring break in uh, Greece, it was uh, Aegean Air to go from uh, Athens to Santorini. The flight was, like, $40 or something. And, um, but it was, you know how they, they want you to buy a seat now you got to pay for your seat so that the family can sit together the cost was three dollars per ticket so i was like okay I'll, i'm gonna do three dollars to make sure that we can sit together like that's 12 bucks for the four of us not a big deal um in domestic carriers here it's like 30 dollars or something crazy you know and you're like, i'm not spending 120 dollars to do that but i'll spend three um so anyway i did that and i don't know if they would have sat us together or not they said it wasn't guaranteed but i figured it's a 12 dollar guarantee yeah, I risk that when I fly with my kids because if you want to put my four-year-old next to a stranger, you go for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. You actually might prefer that. <laughs> yeah. So cool. All right, thanks for joining us today on episode forty-seven of the Making Margin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Mm-hmm.